0: This is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. Polls. It seems like a new one is out every day. How are lay readers to make sense of the election and other polls, which often show different results? What do polls really tell us, and what don't they tell us? David Leonhardt is with us today. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning economics columnist, the former DC bureau chief. And he founded the Upshot, a Times politics and policy feature that heavily relies on data to tell stories. David likes data. He's here to talk about polls and what they do and don't tell us. Hello, David. Hello. So, polls what do they measure and what don't they measure and what difference does it make?
1: I think the important thing to remember is that any one poll is of marginal use, but all the polls together usually tell us something meaningful about what's going on. Like what? Like the polls are right more often than they're wrong if you take them as a whole. There are counterexamples, right? In the election, the recent general election in Britain a year and a half ago, which now feels like a long time ago because it was pre-Brexit, they sort of badly missed on how big Cameron was going to win. But But who
0: is that information useful for? Is that useful for voters? Is that useful for candidates and political strategists? Who wants to know? People who are engaged in the market?
1: Well, we all want to know, right? Everyone loves to denigrate the horse race and say, oh, I don't care well, about the that. horse race. You know, yet. You know. Many more people, if given the choice, will go read a story about who's going to win than r- read me writing 5,000 words about infrastructure policy, sadly. Um, and I don't think we should actually feel that guilty about it. First of all, political strategists really, really use the polls. It dictates their strategy. So there's no way to intelligently cover politics and not care about the horse race.
0: All right. So what makes a good poll?
1: Well, we're in this really interesting moment in polling because for a long time, the answer to the question you just asked was extremely basic. It was, you need to use this system of random dialing where you basically randomly dial phone numbers and make sure you reach a representative sample. But as is obvious, people's relationships with their phones are changing. So many people don't have landlines. Many people aren't going to answer a 1-888 number that comes in on their cell phone. So polling has gotten harder. I think the right answer is to take a real variety. Use the traditional polls that still try to use phones and are still better than anything else. But they're not as good as they used to be. So also wrap in Internet polls. Basically, try to look at a selection of the best polls out there. That's what Nate Silver has done. That's what my, my colleagues at The Upshot, Amanda Cox and Josh Katz, have done. That usually gives you a pretty good picture. Many is better than one.
0: Okay, so for a reader, your advice is you get a poll from Fox showing one thing and one from the Times showing another thing and something else from CNN and read them all and amalgamate a little bit? No,
1: for the vast majority of readers, my advice would be ignore every single individual poll that you see. All right, you can
0: stop listening now, Just
1: ignore them all, right? Every individual poll. (laughs) And pay attention to the polling averages. So I'm biased. I like the New York Times polling average. You can Google NYT polling average and you will get something that is updated constantly. Uh, Huffington Post also has a really nice polling average. 538 has a nice polling average. If you want to be obsessive and want to dig into each poll, that's fine. But here's where you should check yourself. Don't glom on to the polls that show you what you want to see. If you're a Republican, don't get real excited when you see a poll that shows a tide race. And if you're a Democrat, don't say, "Ooh, I just see a poll that shows Hillary up 12. Look for the polls that also show you things that, that have the results that you don't want.
0: Let's talk about this election for a second. You wrote that the mindset of the Republican electorate is angrier and more disenchanted than it has been in years. And you wrote that in the context of explaining why polls had underestimated Trump's power with voters. Is that kind of anger and vitriol something that polls can measure?
1: Just to criticize myself for a second, actually, polls did a better job of noticing Trump's rise— than analysts like I did. So actually, I I said that talking about why I and many, many others had underestimated Trump. But actually, if you just had looked at polls, Trump looked like the Republican favorite from the beginning.
0: What I'm really asking, that's interesting. We can talk about it in a sec. But what I'm really asking is what don't polls measure?
1: Oh, there's a lot that polls don't measure. First of all, I think it's really important not to take polls too literally. So some of my least favorite poll questions are the ones where we ask people why you voted for a candidate. I often think people aren't exactly telling the truth when they answer those questions.
0: Or they might not know.
1: That's right. I don't mean they're lying. I mean that that it's almost an unfair question to ask them. Yes, that's a much better way of putting it. And so we sort of assume, oh, my goodness, we look for the candidate who aligns with us on economics. um, Or we decide that national security is the most important topic for us, and then we choose our candidate. Actually, it's often the reverse. Often we choose our candidate for almost tribal reasons, or other reasons. And then we say, oh, wait a second, I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. That's because I care about experience. So you then say you care about experience after you've decided to vote for Hillary. You don't decide you care about experience and then say, hmm, which candidate is more experienced. And so I think what don't polls measure, I think it's important to often take them with a grain of salt when we ask people to explain why they do things.
0: You suggested after the 2012 election that a better question to ask people than who are you voting for or why would be who do you expect to win? Want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, And again, I wouldn't put too much weight on any one poll or any one question. So I don't think we should move away from the, the who are you going to vote for and go totally over to the who do you think is going to win. I just think we should more often be asking who do you think is going to win. So it turns out that who do you think is going to win actually has a better record than who are you going to vote for. And we think there are are probably, social scientists who've studied this think there are a few reasons. One, when you ask people who they think is gonna win, they're not only giving you their own views, but they're thinking about what they heard from their neighbors, right? It's sort of a wisdom of crowds thing. But there's also a chance that they're gonna be a little bit more honest with you about their own vote.
0: Because they can camouflage their own prejudices and disguise them with the groups.
1: That's right, so imagine a Democrat Imagine a sort of centrist Democrat who in 2012 was a little disappointed with Obama, and they were asked in in July, who are you going to vote for? Maybe they were kind of flirting with the idea of voting for Romney, and so they'd say Romney. But when push comes to shove, they weren't actually willing to pull the lever for a Republican. We live in a very polarized time. The signature recent example is 2004. The polls between Bush and Kerry kind of went back and forth a little bit. The who are you going to win? always showed george w bush and so there were probably some number of voters who were angry at bush because of iraq um, and so they at different points didn't answer the poll question or maybe they even said Kerry. but when they were asked who they thought were going to win they were much more willing to say bush then it isn't perfect it got brexit wrong so i just want to again emphasize there is no perfect poll question but i would use that as a bigger part of the polling arsenal than it traditionally has been used
0: so this election has famously defied most political conventions and conventional wisdom. Yes, what, how is. does polling fit into that? And is there any connection between Donald Trump's apparent fondness for polls? He recites them constantly. and We'll did... see
1: if he continues to recite them now that he appears to be trailing and significantly in essentially every poll. But he certainly has loved it so far. What's funny about this year is that the polls early on in primaries for out, Most of modern political history have been all but meaningless, right? Herman Cain, for goodness sake, led the Republican race in 2012. And it basically used to be the case that people would briefly flare up, Rudy Giuliani, Herman Cain, but they failed to win this thing called the invisible primary. They failed to persuade other important people in their party, other politicians. And slowly over time, basically those other people who have influence were able to influence the voters. Also voters came to the same decisions that those people who had been looking at it longer came to. What's weird about this year is that the invisible primary didn't matter. Donald Trump became the first candidate who looked like one of these shooting stars in the polls who led it early and then just kept leading it the entire time. And the best that we can make of that It's what you said earlier, which is we're dealing with a really angry, disaffected Republican electorate and their interest in listening to the people like the Bush family, like Mitt Romney, like elders in their party is much less than it used to be. And so this invisible primary just didn't have the impact it used to have. And that seems to be what happened.
0: I think what you're saying is going to resonate with listeners who sense that, yes, if you put all the polls together and you take some with a grain of salt and read widely, you'll have a basic idea of the way things are going. So why do we do this? Tell us maybe a little bit about the economics of polling. Is this A big business?
1: It is a fairly big business. I mean, it doesn't compare to truly big businesses. But as much as we often denigrate polling, I think it comes from actually a a deeply healthy thing, which is we live in a democracy. And the views of the population are the founding principle of our government. And you don't just want to get those views once every four years or once every two years. That doesn't mean you wanna slavishly follow the views of the public, right? Leadership is about sometimes taking the public to a new place. But this idea that we wanna know what people think, I think is a healthy one in a democracy. And yes, we can take it too far and we can obsess over individual polls. But the idea of knowing what people think, not only about politics, but also about all kinds of other subjects, I think is a healthy one. And I think the reason why there's a business, there's a market for it, is that it, people find it useful.
0: Which polls do you follow with most interest or which are most telling to you?
1: So I like looking at the polling averages for politics. I also like looking at the polls that try to do something fundamentally new. So there are dozens of people out there saying, are you going to vote for Trump, Hillary or Gary Johnson? I love when Pew, for example, goes out and says, we are going to do an in-depth poll of Asian-Americans, and we're going to get a good sample of every subset of Asian-Americans. We're going to be able to tell you something about the the habits and the views of not just Chinese-Americans, but Korean-Americans and Pakistani-Americans. I find those things fascinating. The New York Times attempts to do things like that. Other media organizations do as well. The Kaiser Family Foundation does. When you basically are able to add knowledge to the world, those are the kind of polls that are really my favorite.
0: What would you like to see polled that's not? Oh,
1: that's a good question. I think polls that ask people about their behavior are really valuable because it's a little bit like what I was saying before, that when you ask people why they voted a certain way, you sometimes get results that are just a little mushy. And the census, which does a lot of that, doesn't do it all. The census doesn't do polls on religion, for example. Polls about what people are eating and not eating. Polls about how people are raising their kids and not. Those are the things that I would like to see even more.
0: We're moving into the territory of the upshot, so let's talk about that for a minute. You founded it, and it relies a lot on data and graphics. When you started it, you promised to make analytic judgments about which parts of a story matter most and which are secondary. Is there any problem with using analytic judgment in that way? Is there a problem with the paper's age-old effort to keep opinion and news separate?
1: I think that there are certainly tensions and difficult decisions you need to make and advantages and disadvantages. I actually think analytical judgments are really clearly part of news. They are something that we've been making forever. We have a front page, and it has room for only – it used to have room for 10 stories. These days it has room for five or six, mostly because we've decided that we, we don't want to write all these short little news stories, but also because the page itself is smaller. We have limited space on the mobile app when you open our mobile app. So we're making analytical judgments about what matters and what doesn't. When someone gives a speech, does it matter? That's an analytical judgment. And so I think it's just really important to say that analytical judgments are core to news. There is a different realm for opinion. Saying whether someone should have given that speech or not, saying whether a policy should happen or not, is opinion. But saying that this matters or it doesn't is, um, it's core to news and it's core to what our readers want. They want us making judgments to them about what's going on in the world.
0: What did you have in mind with the Upshot? What does data give us as a tool for storytelling that we didn't have before?
1: We had a few things in mind with the Upshot. One is to use story forms other than long blocks of text to tell stories. Traditionally, in journalism, when you've used a map, you've used it in service of a long block of text. Sometimes the right thing to do is use a big map and tell someone like me whose training is in text that, you know what, we don't need 1,200 words from you. We're going to spend most of our time building this really big map, and 200 words will suffice. Sometimes 1,200 words is dead on right, but it's not always. Part of the, the point of the Upshot was also to speak to people in a little bit, different of a voice. It's not just about data. When we talk about being agnostic about what story form we use and letting the content dictate the story form, it's also about the voice we use. Sometimes the right voice is not that classical newspaper voice that I've used thousands of times. Sometimes it's a more conversational voice, a voice more like a podcast, a voice more like an email you might write to a smart friend of yours. And so those were sort of the ideas that we wanted to encompass when when starting the Upshot.
0: Aside from tone, what does The Upshot offer in the way of storytelling technique that The Times didn't provide before?
1: So The Upshot's now run by Amanda Cox, who was one of our lead graphics editors when we started. And I think that the fact that The Upshot is now run by someone whose training and background is not as a a reporter is actually very telling. So what The Upshot tries to do is it tries to say, what is the best way to tell this story given the information that we have? (laughs) Is it six photographs with an extended caption under each? Is it a rich, beautiful map? Or is it 1,200 words of text? our instinct as newspaper reporters, at least my instinct, is to always start with 800 words of text, 1,200 words of text, 5,000 words of text, and just decide what the right number is, and then hang a bunch of ornaments around that, a map, a photo, maybe a video, tweet it out. But that's the wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is to say, we have all these tools, how should we best tell this story? And so I think the fact that the Upshot has now had two different people running it, one whose background is in text, and the current head of it, Amanda, whose background is not, gives you a sense of how it tries to really live up to this idea. We're not going to always get it right, but let's look at this and decide what's the best way to tell this story, and let's let form, follow content.
0: But does it have to do with data-driven ways of understanding what's going on around us?
1: It's certainly the case that the digital revolution has given us access to vastly more data than we used to have access to. So we are able to know things about people's behavior that we didn't used to know because of the computing power that we have. And what that allows us to do is to paint a richer portrait of human behavior than we used to be able to do. Um, which is quite nice. I mean, here's a small example that connects to the presidential election. Thanks to research that's been done, we now know that a lot of the polls taken in a general election before the conventions are noisy and not that meaningful. And we know that once you get about two weeks beyond the conventions, the polls that you have tend to be highly meaningful. There is virtually no candidate who has ever come back from a deficit after the conventions to win the presidency. That's not something we used to know and now we know it.
0: Are there any other hard and fast rules that pollsters and people who watch this kind of data know to be true?
1: No is a high bar, right? <laughs> Sorry. And no, no. It's, Believe to be true. And, and would no, like a, to be true. It's actually a good reminder. We often use words like no, and we shouldn't. And a, a year of Donald Trump is a good reminder that we should <laughs> use phrase like often happen. Yes. Most of modern campaigning isn't as important as the people on TV, and in fairness, many of the journalists you hear are telling you it is. Debates, historically, are not that important. By the time we have debates, the vast majority of people have made up their minds. Most of the stuff just isn't that important. Gaffes aren't that important. I can give you a great list of terrible, embarrassing, seemingly damaging gaffes by Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. What they all have in common, of course, is that they managed to win the election despite those gaffes. The exception, interestingly, is conventions. Political conventions really seem to matter. They are times when huge numbers of Americans tune in. There are times when the parties get a relatively unfiltered message. And unlike journalists, there are times when many Americans are really starting to tune in. And that is why the polls that we're about to get in a week or so should really be quite meaningful. And it's why most people think Hillary Clinton is a pretty strong favorite, because it looks like those polls will show her as being ahead.
0: David Leonhardt, I hope you'll come back. We've just edged into the question of polls and meaningfulness. So there's much more to talk about. I Thank I would love you.
1: to. Thank you for having me. This is
0: Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes and at Google Play, and I hope you will. You can find out more about the inner workings of the New York Times by visiting Times Insider at nytimes.com slash insider. Thank you to Pedro Rosado, Jocelyn Gonzalez, and Teresa Katsourilis, who produce our podcast. And thank you for listening.